Today's scripture is from Matthew 6, 25 through 32. It says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you, put, what you, will, put in, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, they, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of, or span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Today is officially the first day of spring. Did you know that? I experienced it all this week as all the allergies hit me right in the face, and I just woke up just congested. And if you have allergies, you know what I'm talking about, where it just makes everything miserable. So I spent most of the week with a tissue box next to me just... Yeah, I'll spare you the details. My name's Alex. Uh, Cassie and I get to lead this uh, small community of Jesus followers, and so we're so thankful that you are here with us on this beautiful spring morning. Um, if you're hopeful, good. Uh, we'll probably be experiencing winter again sometime in the next week, so if you prefer December, don't worry. It's a few days away. It's a few days away. Well, we are going to continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most influential teaching. And by way of reminder, a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about fasting and how fasting is this opportunity for us to bring our spiritual hunger and our physical hunger into alignment. And then last week, Cassie uh, taught us on the value of treasure and where we find our true treasure is not in the things of this earth, but in the eternal, in the kingdom. And today, we're just talking about anxiety. So easy, just a few easy topics. Um, and by way of reminder, we uh, have three things to remember as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. The first is that the Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated speech. This is to say that Jesus's life exemplifies what his sermon means, and his sermon explains what his life was all about. Second, the whole sermon is Christ describing what life in the kingdom and what allegiance to him as king looks like. 
that this is a description of what life in the kingdom of God is. And then third, that obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is a practice in imagination. That we are taking the words of our first century homeless rabbi, and it takes a little bit of interaction between us, the spirit, and our imagination to begin to process what does it look like for 21st century Americans to walk in the way of our rabbi. So it takes a practice of imagination. Take the time to be creative and to dwell on it. Well, today Jesus said, do not be anxious. Yeah, easy enough. Let's pray. No, can I read you five headlines from this week? If you weren't already anxious, just prep yourself. Uh, War displaces one in five Ukrainians, the UN estimates. Another COVID surge may be coming. Are we ready for it? Federal Reserve announces first interest rate hike since 2018. As offices open and mask mandates drop, some anxieties set in. Netflix is starting to crack down on password sharing. (laughs) War, pandemic, anxiety, and now Netflix is not letting 40 people use a Netflix account for $10. We are truly living in dark times. I hope there wasn't too much anxiety as I read those, but even as we begin to process and hear what Jesus says, it's hard not to go, okay, Jesus, thanks for that. It's hard not to hear Jesus almost being dismissive. Um, There's this skit back from the 70s where it's a therapist and a a patient, and the patient's kind of dialoguing about all they're going through, and the, the therapist goes, just stop it. Just stop it. Quit being anxious. And we can almost read that posture into Jesus's words, but I would encourage us to pause and to wait and to listen to what Jesus is saying. Because sometimes when we hear something like, do not be anxious, we think of maybe those people in your life who have maybe just said, just have more faith. Or maybe you had an out-of-context verse thrown at you, and you just are like, thank you. That doesn't help me deal with the bill I have coming up. I think to take this in the context of Jesus' whole life means that this is a conversation that requires a great deal of empathy, a great deal of compassion. Jesus' teaching on loving one's neighbor suggests that we should really take into account who we're talking to and how we have this conversation. At surface value, these words can seem dismissive, but within the context of Jesus' life, I think these words offer us a framework of faith to cope with the anxieties of life. But not just to cope, but to form us into a non-anxious presence. A non-anxious presence. Can you imagine a community of disciples who are compassionate and empathetic in the moments of chaos, but they are calm, collected, cool-headed, level-headed, injecting love and mercy? Can you imagine a community like that? A community of non-anxious people. I think this is what Jesus is leading us to be, 
to be a community that inserts love and presence in the midst of conflict while also being people of peace, that we inject ourselves and we become a non-anxious presence. I think as Jesus talks about anxiety, this is the type of community he is envisioning. In verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Three times in this passage, Jesus restates kind of his thesis, do not be anxious. He's instructing his disciples to avoid the cycle of anxiety. But anxiety itself is a little bit of a slippery slope of a term where whenever I say that, there's a couple of different thoughts that many of us will have. So let me define it real quick. Anxiety is first and foremost a warning signal hardwired into our body and is an essential component of human survival. This is an incredible aspect of the human person, that as soon as danger strikes, stress and anxiety creep in, that our heart rate increases, our senses are focused, our attention becomes pinpoint accurate. This was incredibly helpful for primal humans when they were trying to escape a saber-toothed tiger. It is really helpful to be stressed Like, without stress, the human species probably would not survive. Stress is, and anxiety is, a necessary component of human survival. In fact, it helps us in many different ways, because think about the high-pressure situations we step into, that oftentimes it can help with things like testing, with presentations, or with public speaking. As crazy it is to say, like, as I'm preparing to give a sermon on anxiety. There were moments of anxiety, but it helps clarify the thoughts and brings me present to this moment. I don't think Jesus is speaking of the experience of anxiety right there. I don't think Jesus is talking about the moment of fear that sets in whenever you see something that you do genuinely need to be fearful of. Nor do I think Jesus is talking about like a chemical imbalance in the body that is many people's experience. Um, We will never be a place that condemns people for engaging in medicine to try and get their bodies right and their health right and their mind right. This will always be a place of healing and hope. So Jesus is not talking about either of those things. I think Jesus is talking about anxiety as a pattern of rumination, anxiety um, as a pattern of thinking about the same thing over and over and over into the point it becomes a fear in our life. The verb Matthew chooses is one that has the connotation of choking or strangling, this idea of a slow death. The anxiety Jesus seems to hone in on is a pattern of rumination and self-sabotage. The difference is pretty clear in some of our experiences with life. Have you ever walked into your home or a room that's dark and you see something off into the corner and your heart rate goes instantly into your throat? You're like, oh my gosh, someone's in my room. You turn on the light and it's like a hoodie on a chair. 
That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about thinking about the hoodie on the chair. Why was it there? Who put it there? Why is it there? Why is it still there? Why didn't I move it? I should have cleaned my room. He's talking about rolling over our fears and our thoughts, which just pulled the hoodie off the chair. He's talking about that pattern of ruminating and just continuing to get more anxious and anxious about a particular event, situation, or conversation. We all know that feeling when we get a 10.45 p.m. email from our manager. It's nothing important, but you spend the rest of the night thinking, and it's 2 a.m., and you're like, I should really go to sleep. But what did he mean when he said we've got a project to work on? Like, we all know that experience of ruminating on a problem on a situation or a challenge. I don't think Jesus is talking about the normal pattern of anxiety. I think he's talking about a pattern of rumination that disrupts our lives and inhibits our flourishing. Oftentimes, these are the late night thoughts, the things that keep you from having a restful night of sleep. Jesus instructs his disciples not to worry about food or clothing and follows it up with a rhetorical question. Is life not more than food, and the body not more than clothing? And of course, the answer to this rhetorical question is yes. Life is more than what goes into our belly. Life is more than what we clothe ourselves with. But these are questions of provision and of perception that oftentimes the things that take up the most real estate in our mind are questions of provision and perception. The things that we need and what others think of us. And oftentimes these are the things we spend the most time ruminating over. Jesus is speaking to disciples who more or less have everything that they need for human flourishing. They have everything they need to walk through life, but yet are still anxious. The same could be said of us. If you are here, you likely have more than enough to live on. You likely have more than enough for survival. But that doesn't change the fact that there are worries and fears that oftentimes set in. And that doesn't change the fact that we can roll over a situation or an expense over and over and over in our mind. A bill, an expensive car repair, an unforeseen tax expense, the way a conversation went, the tone of a coworker, a relational conflict or an upcoming conversation. The simple reality is that these things are important. So don't hear Jesus saying food and clothing are not important. He ate and he wore clothes. He's not saying that these things are not important, but I think what he's saying is that they have a way of inflating to become far more important in our mind than they actually are. I think Jesus is inviting us to investigate our thoughts and our feelings to gauge what we've given too much power to, to just pause and ask the question, how much power does this thought, this idea, this situation deserve in my life? Has prestige and respect been driving me to ruminate on every professional action? Has the pressure to maintain a particular image pushed me to the place of financial instability? 
have narratives of romantic love put an unnecessary weight on my dating life. These things are important, and I don't think Jesus is diminishing them. I think he simply wants them to be put in their proper context. Now, I recognize at 11 p.m. in the midst of a full-blown anxiety attack, asking, is this important, isn't really the helpful question. But I think the day after could be. I think the day after we could investigate, okay, I was really freaking about, out about this. Should I have been? What power does it have in my life? This is a strategy for coping with a pattern of rumination. It's simply the practice of taking notice of your feelings. Notice the things that trigger you and ask the simple question, am I giving this more power than I should? Cassie mentioned this last week, but a few weeks ago we received the bad news that we owed the federal government twice what we anticipated. So it was a Friday morning, we were driving uh, out to the Kansas side of things, and uh, she mentioned this, and she kind of said, it's going to be this, and we just sat with it. You know those moments where you get a piece of news, and you're just like, I, what, what do we say? We just sat for probably five minutes, just shell-shocked by what happened, and just the fact that some of our long-term plans and some of our goals for this year we're really disrupted. We're really disrupted by this simple piece of news, and we sat in the anxiety of it all. But quickly, you begin to ask and rephrase Jesus' question. For us, the question is, is life not more than vacations? Is life not more than a house? Is life not more than numbers in a bank account? And this is not to say these things aren't important or that you shouldn't enjoy a vacation nor that you shouldn't move into a house or that you shouldn't, you know, be paying attention to your finances. This is to say life is more than those things. And then if we can properly contextualize, we can respond in faith and hope. This isn't necessarily going to make disappointment go away. But I think it properly frames life and helps us to be a more non-anxious presence for people. That if we can properly frame the difficulties and challenges, it helps us step into the space of being a non-anxious presence. Jesus invites us to investigate our thoughts and feelings, to gauge what we've been given too much power to, and then he observes that creation itself demonstrates the particular care of our Father. In verse 26, Jesus says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why then are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now that Last little aside, oh, you of little faith. Uh, I don't think is a derogatory um, conversation with the disciples. You see it actually kind of as a, 
a, a playful um, nickname for the disciples throughout the biblical narrative. There are two storm narratives, and in both, Jesus says something similar. Oh, you have little faith. It's more of a endearing terminology to the disciples. And so Jesus offers us two illustrations from the natural world that illustrates God's sustaining provision. The first is that the birds of the air do nothing to prepare for tomorrow's meal, yet they survive. And the second is the flowers of the fields spend nothing and yet are more beautiful than the wealthiest monarch. All of creation, everything under the sun, finds its very existence and continued persistence in the care of our God. Paul, in reasoning with the Athenians, says in him we live and move and have our being. And in his letter to the church of uh, Colossae, he says, and Christ is before all things, and in, in, in him all things are held together. This is to say that our world is aflame with God's presence. Our world is charged with his life-sustaining, his life-granting presence. And it is almost in their simple and beautiful experience that the birds of the air and the lilies of the field are preaching and singing to us. Have faith, have faith, have faith. Have you ever just taken a moment to take just nature in, whether it's a hike, a moment in a park, a beautiful day, there's something so invigorating about just being present in God's creation. Again, it is almost as if creation itself is saying, have faith, have faith, have faith. How much more will he care for you? Jesus argues from the lesser, the birds and the lilies, to the greater human beings. And if God persists in his care of the lesser, how much more so will he care for the greater? In Jesus' appeal to creation, there is a not-so-subtle appeal, appeal to our own creature, or creatureliness. We are created beings. We are humans created in the image of God, meaning we are both body and spirit. We talked about this as we talked about fasting. We are not just a soul riding around in this sack of flesh. We are both body and spirit. You are not less than a body, but you are more than it. This is to say, when anxiety sets in, one of the first places you notice it is in your body. You notice it in your heart rate. You notice it in your breathing. You notice it in your sweating. And I think in Jesus' appeal to our creatureness, it is appeal, an appeal to our body to say, pay attention. Notice what is going on. Notice what is happening in your gut, because sometimes your gut can tell you what's going on long before your brain can. And he's calling us to pay attention to it. We do not possess the omniscience of our creator. He'll later go on to say that I tell you that therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own troubles. So he calls us to be present to the moment, present to our body, 
And so here's the simple piece of advice I think Jesus is giving us. When ruminating on anxiety, a stressful situation, when fear begins to choke you, Jesus' encouragement is to recognize God's provision in creation and anchor yourself to the moment. Anchor yourself to where you are. Breathe in and breathe out. Be reminded of whose breath is in your lungs. Become present to the moment that you find yourself in and recognize at that moment you have everything you need. That right now, no matter what problems exist tomorrow, no matter what situations you're facing on Tuesday, no matter what bill is in your mind, you currently have everything you need for life and for faithfulness. You're good. And sometimes simply the act of breathing in and breathing out reminds us to be present to our moment and to recognize the provision of our God. And then Jesus moves on and invites us to exchange working for our kingdom to resting in his. He says in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows all that you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Jesus repeats his prohibition against anxiety and offers two additional reasons. The first one is that anxiety is a practice of the Gentiles. Well, heads up, we're all Gentiles, so makes sense. He knew, he knew. Uh, and this would have been rhetorically significant for his original audience, the disciples, who were um, Jewish men and women who in many ways understood their identity against the Gentiles, if that makes sense. So they understood, I am a Jew, and that makes me different than the Gentiles. And so it's a rhetorically significant case for his original audience, not so much for us, because we are the anxious Gentiles. His second appeal is that our God is omniscient and that he's a God of provision, that the Gentiles do not trust the provisional God of Israel, but you do. He is benevolent and knowing, trust him to do what needs to be done. Jesus then redirects the pursuit and the aim of his disciples. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We've talked about the kingdom of God a lot, so I'm going to give an oversimplified version of it. But the kingdom of God is God's plan, his story and his desire for humanity and creation. The kingdom of God is the place in which his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Then righteousness refers to our ethical conformity with that kingdom. To seek first the kingdom and his righteousness is to imagine God's future. To imagine when God becomes king, when he sets up his reign here on earth, what will reality look like? To begin to imagine that and to say, okay, if that's the case, how do I live in accordance with that? If God's future reign comes to earth, when it comes to earth, how do I live in accordance with it? 
This is to say that if the kingdom is a space of generosity, of provision, of beauty, of kindness, if it is a space of justice and mercy, then it is our responsibility as citizens of that kingdom to live in such a way that we are offering generosity, provision, beauty, justice, mercy, and kindness to our world. It is to be people of the future here and now. And in many ways, this offers us a change in expectations. Sometimes the greatest source of anxiety is our own unmet expectations. If you think that walking with Jesus will make you wealthy, healthy, and wise, it might make you wise, but I don't know about the first two. If you think that walking with Jesus will give you a picturesque life that shows up in all the commercials in between our shows, I can tell you that is probably not what's going to happen. If you have ideas of the Christian Mingle commercial for your life, walking with Jesus is not that. In many ways, Jesus' encouragement to seek first the kingdom is to take a look at our own expectations to look at our own expectations for what we think our life will be and to say, okay, does walking with Jesus and walking with his kingdom, within his kingdom, is that what's going to be produced? What if seeking first the kingdom means we have to abandon our claim on the American dream? What if seeking first the kingdom means we have to abandon the notion that our money is our own? What if seek first the kingdom means we abandon our pursuit of the house that every influencer on Instagram has? What if seeking first the kingdom means we abandon our race to a particular definition of success? What if seek first the kingdom requires a lot of looking at our expectations for what our life will be? What if it requires us to take a long, deep look at what we truly treasure in our heart? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think when we seek first the kingdom, many of the sources of rumination and anxiety in our life are robbed of their power. That if we truly commit ourselves to following the houseless Jewish rabbi from the first century, it will properly contextualize every financial stress. If we recognize that he is inviting us to follow in his kingdom, what if it means that we rely less on our own ingenuity and more on the Father's provision? That we look less at our own desires and more towards the needs of our neighbor? To seek first the kingdom is not a careless and blind gamble. It is to recognize the value of Jesus' offer and to invest in that offer. Later, he'll offer this parable of a man who finds a great treasure in a field. He finds this treasure. I imagine he reburies it. It would seem like a bad idea to just leave treasure right there in the open. But it is of such great value that he goes back and sells everything he owns for the sake of that treasure. Jesus says this is what the kingdom is like, that you don't truly understand its value until you're willing to gamble everything else on it. 
that the kingdom and Jesus is inviting us to gamble all that we have, all that we know for a stake in his kingdom, that he is inviting us into life and life more abundantly, that his invitation is to a life more beautiful and more precious than we could ever imagine. In order for us to become the non-anxious presence that Jesus commits us to, there are these three things that we reflect on. This is kind of a summary of what we talked about. Ask yourself what narratives or situations in my life have I allowed to become bigger or more powerful than they actually are? How can I become more present to my body and to the events of today? How can I be more present here and now? And how can I adjust my expectations so that they conform to the kingdom of God? Worship team, if you want to join me up here, um, I quote him all the time. One of my favorite scholars, philosophers, is a man named Dallas Willard. Jesus says, do not be anxious, and he offers us this invitation into his rest. And someone once asked Dallas Willard what he thought Jesus was like. Like, if you had to describe Jesus in one word, what would it be? Get your word in your mind. Think of it right now. What would be the one word? What would be the one word to describe Jesus? This person, when they asked Dallas Willard, what they thought, what he thought Jesus was like. Like me, they anticipated pretentious, educated, and lofty terms. Oh, holy, magnificent, majesty, teacher, creator, impressive, genius. They expected all these lofty terms. And Dallas sat there for a minute, reflecting. And he said, I, I think I would describe Jesus as relaxed. I would describe the creator of the universe who took on flesh and blood and chose to dwell amongst us. Yeah, he's pretty relaxed. That as we look at the pattern of Jesus's life, we see someone who was not in a hurry. We see someone who was invested in the moment invested in the, the slight, someone touched the back of his robe and he knew this was a moment. We see someone who was unhurried with the affairs of life, but lived in the moment, relaxed. We see this moment where all the kids are climbing on Jesus and I imagine there's a lot of laughter. And the disciples, as serious as we are, we're going and we're, Jesus, like, he's a teacher. Don't you know who, who you're sitting on and who you're talking to and whose leg you're pulling, whose beard you're plucking? Don't you know who this is? Jesus says, let, let them all come to me. We serve and we apprentice under a master who is relaxed. One that invites us to recognize his kingdom, but it is a rhythm of relaxed pace. In John 15, Jesus says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. To experience the life of Jesus, we have to live out the lifestyle of Jesus. That commands and abiding are not two different things, but that he invites us into rest. Um, Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and light, and I will give you my rest. Notice that yoke is an implement of agricultural use. Jesus is working in an agricultural society. So he offers this picture of a yoke, which is used by um, farm animals to drag a plow. And so Jesus's invitation is that, hey, let's go to work. Saddle up next to me, but it will be easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and I will give you rest. That we don't get to experience the rest of Jesus by checking out. We don't get to experience the rest of Jesus by just committing to laziness. We get to experience the rest of Jesus by working to abide with him and live in the pattern he gave us. So as we do every week, I want to offer you a practice. We talked about abiding, and abiding in, in the Greek is kind of this word uh, that has this idea of dwelling, staying, residing, or to make your home amongst. So this passage, John 15, to learn to abide is to learn to make our home in God's love. Ronald Roy's, Roy Hauser once said, Prayer is learning to relax into God. Could you say that of your prayer life? I know I, I couldn't say that my prayer life is learning to relax into God. Oftentimes my prayer life is that space of anxiety where I'm like, here are all the things. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that God is saying, don't, don't bring all these things to me. But I think once we kind of list off our, our, our shopping list of God, can you help? I think there's this space of learning to relax into the love of our God. In the tradition I've grown up in, we oftentimes call this quiet time, uh, but there's not a whole lot of quiet in the time, is there? There's a whole lot of talking. And if you were here on Tuesday uh, for our, our prayer training, our abide night, uh, we learned to do a listening prayer. Um, in the, the Roman Catholic tradition, this is oftentimes called contemplative prayer. This is prayer that kind of just pulls on a lot of different things like silence, solitude, um, mindfulness, reflection, dwelling on the scriptures. So it's kind of a catch-all term for this sitting and just being present with God. No agenda, no words to, to throw up, just being present to our body, present to the moment, and present to our God. And so, this may kill some of you, but for 60 seconds, for 60 seconds, we're just going to sit in silence. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to practice this. 
I would suggest getting your feet flat on the floor, settling into a comfortable position in your chair. Maybe put your hands out in front of you, clasp them together, just kind of get them in a space in which they won't bother you. And then close your eyes. Draw attention to your breath in and your breath out. Recognize with every breath in and with every breath out, it is our God reminding us of his love. Focus on your breathing. And if you need a thought or something to just roll over in your head, just just simply say, Jesus, you are my rest. Jesus, you are my rest. Jesus, you are my rest. Thank you.